The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! Everybody and welcome back to episode zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> and you just ran out of steam right there. And I'm done. Thank you, everybody. Whitney will take it from here. Uh, hi, welcome back to the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic, a longtime Rocky Horror aficionado. I've seen the movie numerous times. We're talking about hundreds. It, it is in the hundreds. Um, probably, maybe close to a thousand, but I, I stopped counting long ago. Hmm. Uh, this comes from uh, the fact that I was working at the movie theater that showed it. Yes. So I was on staff every time it showed, so I actually kind of had to watch it, even when I wasn't there like as an attendant. And this was after youth of having seen it numerous times. So yeah, I was, I was deep in Rocky Horror for a long, long time. Uh, and it was my idea to do this movie. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And yeah, this is the episode zero podcast. And on this show, we look at the prehistory of pop culture phenomena. We started off with 20 episodes about the prehistory of Star Wars, the various films that inspired it. And uh, now we are, we're rounding out. We're only got a couple episodes left, but we've been talking about the prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and the various films that inspired that particular pastiche of all that which came before it. Mm -hmm. And this has been a wild journey. We've been talking about a lot of interesting cinema, um, some of which better than others. But few, I think we could say, are better than the movie we're talking about this week because the movie we're talking about on this particular episode of Episode Zero... I maybe not top ten, but I think this is one of the best motion pictures yeah. ever made. Cahier du Cinema, mm. that uh, once venerable film rag, uh-huh. uh, which was recently bought out by some horrible group, and kind of it kind of just broke apart. Like, like, like all just the critics year, just laughed, yeah. but like, but, but they, uh, they notoriously like mm. like absurdly high standards. Like the, the highest, like they they were. It's like a Citizen Kane, sure. Like that, that's their view. Well, they, fact, were the, they were the ones who actually vaunted Citizen Kane in the true. first place in the 50s. Maybe that's not the ideal uh, example. In Okay, b- bad example. But yeah, when, when it came to like putting together their like year end lists, they would always choose like the most obscure things from all around the world because they were an international paper. And uh, it would always baffle American audiences. Why would you choose that? And uh, sometimes they would throw in like a little bit of a curveball. It's like, oh yes, and Twin Peaks is Twin Peaks: The Return is the best film of the year. It's a TV series. No, it is a film now. <laughs> we have said so because we are Cahier du Cinema. We can get away with that. Yeah. And then, like number seven on that list, oh yes, and one of the best films of the decade was The Lone Ranger. It's like, what? No, stop, stop. <laughs> now you're just being contrarian. Uh, yeah, they had really unbelievably high taste, and they listed. Citizen Kane is the best film uh, of the decade. This was like about a decade ago when they last did one of these polls. And number two. And number two was The Night of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. 
never told you he'd throw it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick. Ruby, get. What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here. Then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. I can't argue with the fact that The Night of the Hunter is considered one of the second, is like the second best film of all time, because good golly, is it great. It's an obscenely good motion picture. <laughs> this is, this movie has everything. It's it's dramatic, it's funny, it's frightening, it's wholesome. Uh, it's got uh, really, at the time, very contemporary cinematic filmmaking, but it's also incredibly evocative of the silent era. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those interesting sort of midway through the century linchpin films where... I feel like it's commenting on everything that came before it while informing everything that came after it. Like, I would put it right up there with, like, Psycho in terms of just mm. how significant a halfway through the history of cinema point it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, which is weird because Night of the Hunter, when it came out, wasn't particularly well received. Wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, panned or anything. No, but just, yeah, it, was it like, wasn't oh, a huge okay. hit. Yeah. It, was, it didn't make a lot of money, and the critics were medium a lot of people appreciated what Charles Lawton was going for, but didn't really outwardly celebrate it. It didn't win a lot of awards, and it just sort of faded a little bit. And then a few decades later, people realized that we've never stopped talking about it, and then it kind of became canonized yeah. as one of the great motion pictures. What is The Night of the Hunter? The Night of the Hunter is uh, a crime drama, and it stars Robert Mitchum as an itinerant, not priest, not minister. He uh, doesn't ever say what church he works for. In fact, the dialogue is, uh, the the religion I practice is the one I've worked out between me and God. So he kind yeah. of has made up this kind of amalgam of yeah. certain like puritanical Christian churches. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, travels the countryside preaching and murdering. Uh, especially those things that perfume themselves up and dress all frilly. There's a lot of like uh, sexual hysteria and we learn very quickly that he's a serial killer. Yeah. He's picked up on a lot of Mm. misogyny in the Mm. Bible, which if you've read the Bible, that's not an unreasonable read. A lot of the time, there's a lot of really negative portrayals of women in the Bible. In fact, uh, what was that sitcom we talked about on, uh, on cancel too soon? I was was, uh, living biblically was the uh, living biblically. And it was, um, the premise was uh, a reporter was going to live by the word of the actual Bible of, I think it was for a year or something like that. He was like, he gave himself, try, yeah. yeah, gave himself like a, a finite amount of time. And yeah. there was an episode where uh, his wife confronted him about all the misogyny in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if you're going to live to the letter of this ancient book, are you going to live up to all of the misogynistic stuff as well? Yeah. And he, he's, you know, his first, his gut reaction was like that of defiance. Yes, absolutely. I, no, wait a minute. That's actually really shitty. Yeah. And at, at the end he realizes, well, this, there's actually stuff in the Bible he can't live up to because he has to be a bad person. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, Robert Mitchum has picked up on a lot of this. Uh, there's a scene right at the beginning where he's at a strip show 
Uh, and oh God, I love the way Charles Lawton lights this movie. We'll, 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 yeah. stop, we'll talk about the lighting in a second, but uh, he's watching a, a burlesque program and he's sitting there and he has his hand in his pocket and he's holding on to a switchblade in his pocket. And yeah. right when like, Something, his, yeah, a moment when someone might normally be aroused. Yeah, like his arousal is an act of violence and like the, the switchblade switch knife like pokes through his coat, like right yeah. at his crotch level. It's like, okay, we and this is right at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, we know exactly where this, There's this, this character stands There's this incredible shot from. at the beginning of this movie. It's, mm-hmm. It opens with, well, it opens actually on a star field like Star Wars and then mm-hmm. Lillian Gish, uh, iconic silent star uh, in like one last great, amazing role. Um She's actually preaching to children's like floating heads in space, and it just creates this incredibly otherworldly effect. Mm. Where, uh, yeah, it just feels like the the world that we're about to watch is a world of parable, mm. and I think that's a really important takeaway. Uh, we then cut to some children just playing near a farmhouse, and then they find like in like the the uh, the staircase to the cellar. Uh, a woman's feet, not like severed, but we're not going to get a gruesome the, the, image because it's feet, the nineteen fifty. The feet of a, a yeah. woman's bot, and dead body, and, and they're they're manipulated in such a way where it's like there's no way she'd be laying like that normally. Mm. Uh, and then we get a fucking helicopter shot or something <laughs> like this really tall, like pull away. Mm. It's this incredibly epic. And then we just cut to Robert Mitchum as Harry Powell. Uh, Harry Powell is ca- talking talking to, talking to God. God apparently. Talking back, it's not very encouraging. And uh, Carrie Powell is very abruptly, after introducing the character, arrested, not for murder, for stealing a car, and he's given 30 days. At which point, we cut to another group of kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are, um, oh, uh, John and Pearl Harper, played by uh, Billy Chapin and uh, Sally Jane Bruce. And their father, Peter Graves, in I'm sorry, this is his first film role. I think was wasn't it Peter Graves' first film. Let me let me double check that. I think, I think it's his best it, film. It's it, it. I think it was definitely like early, like early on in his career. Yeah, Peter Graves. If you don't know Peter Graves, Peter Graves was a was, big TV star. He was on Mission Impossible. You know, Jim, he, he played Jim Phelps in the original Mission Impossible. Yeah. Uh, very very prolific. Made a lot of B movies. Made some A movies as well. He was the he was Captain Over in Airplane. <laughs> Probably what a lot of people know him best yeah. from. Uh, he's a host of biography. Yeah, this was not his first film. No, he was. No, he, he he'd was, already been in uh, Stalag hmm. Seventeen, which I apologize. That's also a really good movie. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I apologize. I don't know where yeah. where I had that in my. Uh, head, he but. was also in It Conquered the World, which is I'm I'm obscenely fond of that stupid movie. It, uh, it's quite bad, but it's it's like it's, weirdly watchable. It's got really good ideas in it, and Beverly Garland's in it. So how bad can it possibly be? Um, but I digress. Anyway, uh, they're these little kids. Their father, played by Peter Graves. Uh, like zooms up to them in a car and says, "Hey, I got ten thousand dollars. I need you to help me hide it." And then he tells the kids to promise him they will never tell where they, where he hid the money. We not, don't not we, even their mom. We yeah. don't we don't see where the money is now. Is he, it might be the he, sort of thing you know through the, cultural osmosis, but yeah, the, we don't know yet. The, the cops are on his tail. He has to hide this money right before the cops show up in like sixty seconds. Yeah. And so he hides the money. He, he like basically throttles his kids. Say, you can never tell where the money mm-hmm. is. And then the cops arrest him right in front of the kids. An incredibly traumatizing moment. And this is something that I've seen this movie so many times. But watching it again for this. After I've been through in the last few years. Like on a real journey with my uh, mm-hmm. therapy. 
um, made me realize just how sensitive this movie is to a children's plight. Like, because those yeah, kids well, have been through a lot, and I think Charles Lawton understands the hell that if, they're going through. If you pay attention to the way Charles Lawton directs this, um, you'll notice that most of the characters, indeed most of the shots, are a little lower Mm. Uh, than than traditional filmmaking. Uh, traditional filmmaking, the director would be from like a standing position or a, yeah. and a seated adult. Yeah, and that, uh, there, there's a I lot mean, the of assumption that that's the audience. There's yeah. a lot of lower shots and a lot of lower angles in Night of the Hunter, so it's all told from the kid's perspective. Yeah, this is a technique that Steven Spielberg would famously use in E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Mm. There are very few shots in E.T. that aren't from a child's eye view, mm. uh, and it's incredibly immersive and it reminds you of a different period in life. Um, Peter Graves is sentenced to die. He killed a guy, apparently, while in the process of robbing a bank. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, his cellmate, while he is waiting mm -hmm. on death row, is Harry Powell. And Harry Powell finds out about the money, but he doesn't find out where it's hidden. So after Peter Graves dies, and we find out that these children are basically pariahs, they don't go to school anymore, the children in, the, in, in town make fun of them because their dad was executed, which, that's fucked up. Um... Harry Powell shows up, claims he was working at the prison, bit of a lie, and uh, starts ingratiating himself into the community. Uh, and at first, everyone's people are a little suspicious. Mm -hmm. Then he tells everyone, like, oh, no, no, Peter Graves told me where he hid the money. He said he threw it in the river. And everyone's like, oh, that's good. So now we know he isn't after the money. Meanwhile, John and Pearl are like, uh-huh. Hmm. <laughs> And uh, their mother, played by the incredible Shelley Winters, uh, is in a position now where everyone in like town is like basically browbeating her into finding a husband for their kids because their mm. old dad was a sinner. He committed, he, he stole and killed. Mm. You know, he made mistakes. And uh, now these kids need a father figure. And wouldn't you know it, Robert Mitchum just showed up. How convenient. You should marry him. He's probably not a serial killer who's only after the money. Here, here's the thing. Robert Mitchum is a supremely creepy actor. Yes. I've never seen him play a handsome charmer. Like, he wouldn't take a Clark Gable-type role. No, and no would anyone, I think, cast him in one. Like, even no, if you look at him in something that's a bit more conventional. Like, he did a really good movie I like called uh, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, mm. where uh, he's uh, stranded on a beach in World War II with a nun played by, I think, Deborah Kerr. Um, I, I don't know this movie. Yeah. Oh, you've never seen that? It's really good. Yeah. I used to be on all the time when I was a kid. My mom and I, it was one of my mom's favorites. Um, but the whole thing is he's straight on this island, and normally this would be like this really romantic situation, except she's a nun and he's a brute. He's a, a big muscle dude who mm -hmm. just, he, he's, <laughs> he's got like a heart, but he doesn't really know how to access it. Like there's something about Robert Mitchum's persona and almost everything you see him in where you just know that even if he's not playing a bad guy, he's probably got away with murder at some point. Yeah. He probably and, uh, beat someone to death with his fists at some <laughs> point in his life. Uh, Robert Mitchum, uh, by all accounts was actually kind of a gruff dude as well. Mm -hmm. Um, not, not cruel or anything, but yeah, mm. well, not, not an easygoing man. Yep. Uh, which was, I was thrown even more for a loop when I saw his Calypso record at the record store. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Robert Mitchum put out a Calypso, because he was born in Trinidad. Uh, yeah. And uh, so he's like, oh, I want to make make a record of my home country where I was born. So he made a Calypso record. Uh, 
so bizarre. But yeah, he shows up. Everybody says, hey, Shelley Winters, you should marry Robert Mitchum. And, and you can see how reluctant she is about that. Uh-huh. A, because of her situation. Yeah, I mean, your husband She's, just yeah. died. Like, just but, uh, died. But yeah, like, the, this is her. She doesn't seem eager about any of this. Yeah. Uh, she understands that this is not something that's she wants to do or is really entirely yeah. healthy. But she she has come to be convinced, thanks largely uh, to uh, Evelyn Warden, as uh, Icy Spoon. That's who right, is, Icy. Who is, who is a character who would be, I think, conventionally and probably accurately described as a, quote, old biddy. She is... A, busy, ex- a busy body. Very busy body. Very involved in Shelley Winter's life. Very involved. <laughs> and you can just tell that, like, she's annoying, she's judgmental, she thinks she knows everything, and Anytime she gets her head wrapped around something, she's wrong. Every single time. She's the one who says that Robert Mitchum is going to be the best thing that ever mm-hmm. happened to you and your kids. She's a little bit wrong about that. Shelley Winters finally decides to marry him. And that goes really bad. On their wedding night, she shows up wearing like a nighty, mm. And Robert Mitchum is already like rolled over in bed. And she's just like, "Hey, you! Aren't we gonna? Are we gonna? You know, did you wanna? Did you wanna do marriage, something about this or marriage thing? You know?" And Robert Mitchum's like, "How dare you!" And he tells her to like look at herself in a mirror, and he shames her, and he says, "A no, woman's body is designed to bear children. Do you so want any more children?" Painful. It's so painful yeah, to he, watch. He, the he way basically he is her. destroying her in like yeah. one scene, and he says, "Because if you don't, unless you want children, we're never having sex." And she's like, well, I don't want any more children. Then we're never having sex. Go to bed. And that's going to be their life. And she becomes this person who starts living for her husband because his approval comes at such a high price. Yeah. And he yeah. starts like using her in like local uh, uh, preacher I almost said preacher shows. Sermons. <laughs> preacher shows. He, started, he sets up like a tent and he just makes <laughs> her say like, uh, my sexuality drove my husband to kill just because I wanted perfume. Mm. And I'm like, that's not what he said he did that for. But that's mm. how manipulative Harry Powell can be. That's how manipulative uh, religion can be. That's how religion yeah, talks to masculinity can be. And, that's and how, think, that's uh, how manipulative the society that says you have to live this certain way, regardless of whether or not it's a good idea. And, and I think it's that uh, that uh, evil religious indoctrination, that mm. sort of uh, religious oppression, that uh, connects it to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. A lot but, of them. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. Um, and... and and we'll mention the knuckle tattoos. Uh, that, that's that's actually kind of the direct connection to Rocky Horror. Yeah, the knuckle tattoo. Let's just talk about the knuckle tattoos. Okay, uh, on on his on his left hand, mm-hmm. um, he has the word hate. H a t e. One letter per knuckle. Uh, on on his hand, and on his other hand, he has L o v, love and hate. And he gives a sermon in the movie where he talks about how love and hate are the two wrestling impulses in the human heart. So mm-hmm. he like puts his fingers together, like laces yeah, them together. And they're constantly they're in conflict and eventually mm-hmm. goodwill mm-hmm. win is his philosophy, even though he represents everything evil. Um, this is a speech that is very iconic. Uh, you may recall it from the Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, in which Radio Rahim basically gives the same speech like verbatim. <laughs> it's just basically yeah. Spike Lee's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, let's just do this scene from Night of the Hunter. I mean, it fits perfectly with Do the Right Thing. It's a beautiful scene, but like, he's just doing Night of the Hunter. Mm. It's really funny. And uh, the character of Eddie in 
the Rocky Horror Picture Show has those same tattoos. Yeah. Love and hate. And, you know, the, the snarky comment from the audience is, I love my bike, but I hate pedestrians. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a stupid, it's really fun. It's stupid and it's fun. Yeah. Uh, this idea of love and hate becoming this sort of symbol of defiant and also evil, defiance and also evil, mm-hmm. uh, is something that kind of leaked into a lot of subculture stuff. Yeah. So we're not venerating the Robert Mitchum character, but we are sort of toying with the wicked imagery. Well, I think we're, I think what we're, yeah, I think we're doing is we're taking the wicked imagery and we're taking imagery that a lot of movies that we're portraying it as wicked. Like Meatloaf also has, we could have done the wild one as well for Meatloaf very easily because that was the movie that it didn't invent leather jackets on motorcycles. Of course not. But it did popularize and sexualize it by making it the symbol uh, that Marlon Brando wears throughout the film. But Marlon Brando is not a hero. He's an anti-hero there. He's actually all of that stuff is kind of a force for wickedness in The Wild One. It's a bit of a judgmental film in some ways. Um, But to appropriate that imagery, that stuff that people tell you is bad, and to make it part of like a punk rock persona... Mm. That is something that Rocky Horror does, like in almost every character who isn't Brad and Janet. Yeah, and, yeah. and even Brad and Janet are, are satirical characters. Yeah. So, Rocky Horror was really trying to undermine a lot of uh, moralistic hypocrisy and yeah. taking a lot of images uh, from things that were expressly moral in the terms of Brad and Janet, or expressly immoral. That is, what as as they were dictated by media. Yeah, uh, and throwing it into a party yeah like throwing a party with it and that's where we got the the knuckle tattoos on eddie yeah uh but back to the night Mm. Night of the hunter we've been talking a bit about this from shelly winter's perspective but really the movie again is about uh john and pearl Mm. Uh, john is a little older than pearl pearl is perfectly willing to take to this new father figure yeah she's perfect hey new dad cool great good Mm. I, I, i always wondered what happened to the old one let's do this and John is intensely suspicious, especially considering that Robert Mitchum keeps just sort of poking him about where that money is hidden because John knows where it's actually hidden. Mm. Um, Shelley Winters believes that he doesn't know. And when finally she overhears him talking to and abusing mm. verbally and physically uh, John and Pearl over where the money is, she finally realizes that she's been had. But it's too late now. Mm. They're married. There's nothing she can do. She's in his thrall. And in this incredible scene, this gorgeous shot of their bedroom, and it's so tall, and the roof is so angular, it's like they live in a little chapel. Mm. And as she is lying in bed, an angelic halo of light over her, as she just says that, well, that's that's all there is to this, I suppose. And you can see like darkness overcome Harry Powell as he sort of recoils in this very silent movie, Dr. Caligari kind of motion, this crooked (laughs) hand, his own hand coming up upon him. And then he looms over her with the switchblade and then he kills his wife Mm -hmm. and throws her in the lake. And in the scene in the movie, drive like drives her into a lake. Yeah. Yeah. And then says, and then tells everyone she left me in the night. She was drinking. She's a, she's a bad person. And everyone's Mm -hmm. like, Oh no, poor Harry Powell. Such a good father and in, to those kids. And in one of the most famous shots of the movie, we get to see uh, 
the dead Shelly Winters yeah. uh, at the bottom of the lake. And just, There's and, a, a, a pan shot that pans down beneath the, the water, and we get to see her dead sitting in the, yeah. the driver's seat and, of the submerged and, car. And her, and her nightgown and her hair mm. are floating around mm. her in this very ethereal, dreamlike, ghostly state. Yeah. It's just a stunning image. Yeah, just, it, it, images of of death and violence can be extremely beautiful, and yeah. I think uh, that's that's what horror teaches you, and that's something that you know you want to recoil from the violence, but also they can be presented very beautifully. Well, and I think, uh, and I think in a way, Charles Lawton is reminding oh. us that Shelley Winters' character is herself a victim here. Yeah, and mm-hmm. in in you know we, she made some difficult choices, and maybe she was allowed herself to be manipulated, or maybe she just was herself just purely a victim. It's probably true. But when all is said and done, she's also, you know, a ghost. She's also, they have yeah, this yeah. beautiful biblical imagery around her. Uh, the rest of the film turns into essentially uh, a chase. The kids uh, take to the lamb with the money. Uh, he mm. he knows they know where it is. Yeah, turns out it's and, actually uh, in Pearl's doll. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's this one incredible moment where John comes home and Pearl has taken all the money out of the doll and she started cutting it into paper dolls. <laughs> she doesn't understand that it has value. Well, she, she knows that she's done something wrong. It's like, ah, I've been bad, John. I did a bad thing. And John's like, Jesus fucking Christ, put that fucking thing back in the doll. What are you doing? And then Harry comes out and like they've just managed to shove like most of the money back in. And as he walks out, Saying this creepy reverence was children. <laughs> As he walks out, the last of the paper dolls like float in the wind, like behind him, like he just misses them. <laughs> so fucking great. <laughs> um, but uh, finally, he finds out the money's in the doll, and John and Pearl run, and they take uh, his dad's old skiff, uh, the little raft, uh, and uh, take it down river. And Harry starts chasing them, and it becomes just a nightmare mm. it was already nightmarish but it becomes like a true genuine like just surreal nightmare for a mm. long time you know what it, it reminds me of uh charles lawton clearly took a lot of his visual cues from old silent movies mm-hmm. a lot the this is like uh citizen kane with but on a budget citizen kane <laughs> actually like had a, a little bit more money to it's sort of play around it was a big studio yeah. thing and you know Orson Welles, effects, yeah, or yeah. a lot of visual effects. Orson Welles is like digging trenches so he can get the camera down low enough. Uh, this clearly had like much less money to deal with. Mm-hmm. So what Charles Lawton did is he shot a lot of this in like sort of stark sets. Sometimes there wasn't even a set. He would just mm-hmm. cast a light on a back wall. Well, he, and he wanted it to be in, impressionistic. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So he's going or to like expressionistic. He's going yeah. to yeah films like Caligari, like Nosferatu, um, all these old silent movies to get a lot of his visual trappings. But when it turns into that uh, chase portion of the movie, it actually reminds me of, like, the old Mill and early Walt Disney cartoons. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of, like, shadows and silhouettes, and it starts to take on this really kind of artificial, like, like even more artificial look in the second half. Well, these children are lost mm. in the wilderness at this point. Yeah, They've yeah. lost any sense of connection to anybody. And again, they're little kids. Like, John is pretty bright, mm. but he's like, what is he, 10? It's, yeah, he's pretty, yeah, he's like he's, 9 or 10. He's yeah. like 9 or 10, and he's put in way too much responsibility to take care of his family, to take care of his sister, to honor his father's di- like dying wishes, which is way too much to ask of anybody, let alone a little kid. And it's really wearing on him, and all he can really do, he has no plan, he has no end game, all he can do is run, and that's it. They're on a raft in the mm. middle of the night, running from essentially the Terminator, like there's this scene where they like they find like a uh, a barn, 
uh, on the side of the lake or the side of the river mm-hmm. and they decide to like stop and like try to get some sleep and that's when they see as soon as they put Pearl like shuts her eyes he sees Robert Mitchum in the distance and he's like doesn't he sleep <laughs> and he's like no he's the boogeyman yeah yeah he's he's the absolute worst of humanity and he has come to get you and finally the kids just wash up on shore in front of Lillian Gish and you would think this would be the part, the point where the movie starts like easing up a bit because Lillian Gish, it turns out, is actually a very good mother figure. She's been raising a lot of uh, kids, children born out of wedlock, uh, orphans in her town, and they very much love her. And maybe she'll protect these kids, but it's actually a lot more to it after this. And it doesn't feel, <coughs> bless you, uh, it doesn't feel like padded or forced. It feels like we're actually really about to get to something really important here because the one thing these kids have never had is a reliable parent, a parent who made them feel safe mm. and protected. Even Shelley Winters, who tried, mm. her solution to the kids are bullying her is just to take the kids out of school, but she's not with them all the day. They're just running around. There is no security yeah. that they have ever had. They've never felt secure. Never been nurtured at all. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and the, the relationship between uh, Billy Chapin, or uh, Chapin, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, and Sh- and uh, Lillian Gish is so unbelievably heartbreaking mm-hmm. because this is the first time maybe, maybe he can trust someone else to take care of him and Pearl. Maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's so touch and go. And I, th- Charles Lawton, we haven't really talked a lot about Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton came from a career as an actor. And by 1955... He had been one of the best actors working in cinema for about 20, 25 years. And when I say one of the best actors working in cinema, I mean, like, com- today, when we, th- I would look at Charles Lawton in his day the way a lot of people would look at, like, Daniel Day-Lewis or Meryl Streep now. Like, he is consistently, mm. unbelievably amazing in pretty much anything he was in. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen him already. Uh, oh, if you go over and listen to our only the best podcast, yeah. where we talk about the best picture nominees. He's been in a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, he was in the private life of Henry the eighth, mm-hmm. the Barrett's of Wimpole street. He Ruggles played, of red gap. Ruggles of red gap. He's great in Ruggles of red gap where he plays a, a butler Hilarious. in the sticks. Uh, it's good, like sort of fish out of water mm-hmm. comedy. He, uh, he was Captain Bly in Mutiny on the Bounty. That's mm-hmm. one of his more famous roles. He was a very, very good Inspector Javert in Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if if you like horror movies, he was uh, the Hunchback in the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. The what thirty something thirty nine version. Yep. Uh, he uh, was a pirate in uh, Alfred Hitchcock's very underrated thriller Jamaica Inn. I recently watched that for the very first time, mm-hmm. and I just I think that movie's amazing. People talk about enough. Mm-hmm. He's so funny in uh, the Canterville Ghost. Uh, which is a supernatural comedy that like, very much presages a lot of like sort of like supernatural comedies we have today. The the first film I saw him in was Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. There you go. Yeah, where he played a uh, Roman senator, a uh, uh, Roman nobleman of some kind. Uh, he and played like uh, Sempronius Gracchus. Gracchus. Yeah. And yeah, Gracchus was uh, sort of like the the self, wizened, self aware, but still like vaguely corrupt type of character. Oh, uh, uh, oh, and, and yeah, sorry. Okay. I, I no, it's it's okay. Uh, what else did he act? Oh, I was in? I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna bring up because you you mentioned horror and I thought you were gonna bring up Island of Lost Souls. Uh, yeah, Island of Lost Souls, which we played Doctor Moreau and he is sublimely creepy. And that, that that's that is 
That movie scares me every time. It is creepy. so unbelievably scary. And he was in the old dark house, which mm. kicked off our uh, trip through the prehistory of That's right. uh, Rocky Horror. So he is coming at the... It's really interesting. A lot of actors, when they take a trip behind the camera and they start to direct, it's only natural that they tend to view a lot of their films as character pieces because that's where a lot of their background is. Yeah, and so a lot of they, actors end up making films that feel... Very, very much like I don't know plays or like uh, uh, or, or least, character pieces. Or yeah, like, yeah, character pieces. A lot of a lot of dialogue, a lot of acting scenes, yeah. and that's what concerns them. Yeah, but what's really, really interesting to me are the actors who decide to uh, become a director, and we find out that they're actually really interesting visual stylists. Mm. Uh, they've they've really thought about the filmmaking, not just from the perspective of capturing performances, but from all the other angles as well. And Charles Lawton. He had all those other angles as well, but it's easy to get so wrapped up in the incredible sense of style uh, that he crafted here along with cinematographer Stanley Cortez, who had previously worked on, amongst many other things, the Magnificent Ambersons, mm-hmm. um, and sort of lose the fact that although a lot of the acting is big and arch, it comes from a really intense understanding of characters. And I think this film has a really powerful understanding of trauma. Because what happened to John, Pearl was maybe too young to really fully process it, but what happened to John, seeing his father arrested right in front of him, being forced to make basically a deathbed promise in the middle of playing with his sister, and all of a sudden his whole childhood is shattered, watching his mom marry someone who is obviously manipulating her, being abused by him for the entire duration of that marriage, living in a state of constant panic. That has an effect. And that it, that child gives an incredible act, uh, acting performance. And I think Charles Lawton understands the nature of the manipulations and abuse that he suffered. And I think he understands the importance of Lillian Gish's character representing positive parenting. She's imperfect. She even talks about how she had her own son and she alienated him. She fucked that up. But she's trying to learn and she's trying to be a better parent to other kids. And the way that she uses the Bible to teach children and not to correct them with it either. Like if she talks about like the Moses, she she equates the story of Moses being found uh, along uh, uh, the river. Uh, And uh, John immediately equates that to him and Pearl. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, when they found those two babies. And she's like, no, you know what it was too. (laughs) <laughs> you know why? Because it really doesn't fucking matter. The point of the story is more important than the details. Yeah, yeah. It's not about dogma. It's about sensitivity and love. And boy, is she fucking great. Yeah. What she represents is, um, if, if you want to see The Night of the Hunter as a Christian parable, which sure. it can be read as easily. Totally. Uh, there, this is Charles Lawton essentially saying, there's, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. Yeah. Dogma. Hate, mm-hmm. pressure, false rules, yeah. yeah, and you know th- that's not to be trusted. Yeah. A killer can say that. A charismatic murderer. Yeah. Anyone can, say can those anyone can pretend just by quoting the Bible. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, living it. Is a- different. Actual compassion, you know, Christian behavior mm-hmm. is the is uh, perhaps more correct. Yeah, that that's that's the uh, an argument that's that's being made here. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is she takes in John and Pearl. They start acclimating. They start like becoming mm. more safe, better, uh, better off. And then one night, the uh, teenage girl that she has taken in uh, is it? Was it Ruby? 
Ruby is a teenage girl, and uh, she has been going out. She said she was taking, I think, sewing lessons, but actually she's been going out with boys. And one night, while she is going out to find boys to give her attention, uh, she's found instead by Harry, Mm. who feeds her ice cream, finds out all about where John and Pearl are, and gives her some bullshit about, you know, his, his misogynistic form of Christianity. And because he's the only person who didn't try to use her that she could tell, she immediately falls in love with him. And it's a very strong reminder. It's really cool that we actually get this reminder late in the movie after we are long since convinced of his unbelievable, unmitigated evil. It's a really potent reminder that his evil works. Mm. His, his manipulations have power over people who need what he's selling. And when Lillian Gish uh, uh, sees Ruby coming home and Ruby says, I have not been taking sewing lessons. I've been going out with men. Lillian Gish has this wonderful bit where she like pets her head and say, you were looking for love and you were looking the only way you knew how. And that's yeah. okay. And... It's, but it's not an exchange for anything, and it doesn't come from a place of hate, which is what Harry does. Yeah. So all, this all leads to Harry's assault on the house, which today would be a lot more action packed, <laughs> I think. Yeah, but it's it'd basically be like throwing Molotov cocktails yeah. and stuff. Or, yeah, yeah. But it's basically Lillian Gish like on the porch with a shotgun, like while Harry Powell is like looming in the distance, just basically waiting for her to let her guard down. Mm. And she's so great. <laughs> Gish, who I don't know how old she was. She looks 80. She looks really frail. As you know, she's she, going to kick Robert Mitchum's ass. Oh, this was one of her last movies. I think. It had to um, have been right. Yeah. She, um, the, she, she was pretty old at this point. She, point. Oh, she um, was, no, she wasn't that bad. No, she wasn't that old. Actually. She was only in her fifties. Oh, okay. She was born in 1902. Oh. I, for some reason, I thought she was so much older than that. So, she was born in 1902, so, so she was... Lillian Gish was born in the 90s, like 93. I'm sorry. I was looking at her years active. Oh. <laughs> I apologize. She was she she was mm. uh, born in 1893, so she was in her uh, six, 60s. Mm. She was in her 60s. She lived to age 99. She lived to 1993. Oh, wow. Okay. Good for her. Uh, let's see. She closed her career in 1987. What was her last movie, I wonder? The Whales of August. I never saw The Whales of August. Yeah, this co-stars her and Betty Davis. It's a Lindsay Anderson film, if yeah. I recall. Yeah, Vincent Price yeah. was in it, too. Holy crap. Wow. How about I not seen that? I want to see that one. How about I not seen this damn movie? How about I want to see this movie? A lot of the films, like, quote, for grown-ups that were made in the 80s have been sort of swept aside in, in yeah. favor of a lot of other things. But, uh... Yeah, that that, was in, that was in's good. Lillian Gish. Yeah, it's exciting. Cast. Go Lillian Gish. I'm getting everybody's careers wrong. In this, no, that's this fine. Episode I, here. I was wrong. I uh, thought I thought her uh, career was actually a little shorter than that. But in any case, she's fucking astounding in this. Um, and uh, yeah, it all it, it ends with this beautiful breakdown from John as he finally just gives up on hiding the money and he mm. just says, "I don't care if my dad like told me to hide this. I can't. I can't do this anymore." Mm. I can't do this anymore. And he just gives up and is allowed to be a kid again. And it's so fucking beautiful. <laughs> Broke my fucking heart this time now that I really understood so much more about what goes on behind it. It's so fucking good. Ah, I love this movie. <laughs> it's really, really, really good. Oh my God. We, we touched upon how, uh, how it relates to Rocky horror. And, uh, apart from the knuckle tattoos, uh, I, I did, did want to just say a few extra words about, um, sort of religious oppression and how uh, 
playing with religious imagery is something that both this film and Rocky Horror does. Um, mm-hmm. Night of the Hunter is actually incredibly subversive, especially for the mid-50s, in turning uh, a preacher into a serial killer. First of all, there weren't a lot of serial killer movies, at least not in the public eye at the time. No, it was very uncommon. The, yeah. the, 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 a lot of them were like Bluebeard stories. That was a very common, men who would marry women and then kill them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 Chaplin did a comedy called Monsieur Verdoux. Monsieur Verdoux is which great. is uh, yeah. co-written or based on an idea by Marlon, uh, not Marlon Brando, by uh, Orson Welles. Depending on who you talk to, he either wrote it or he had nothing to do with it. Uh, and uh, let's see, Joseph Cotton had played a Bluebeard uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, but Honeymoon Killers was later. But um, Honeymoon Killers was later. Yeah, but yeah, uh, serial killers were not like part of the common parlance, hmm. nor would they be in cinema until probably after Psycho. Yeah, yeah, after after there was a big at least boom as we know the, them yeah, now. There was a big yeah. boom in of serial killer movies post Psycho, and Keeping yeah. uh, Tom was concurrent, but Psycho mm, was the popular one. So. And then, uh, then again, in the nineties, the, the post Silence of the Lambs wave. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, and and in the original, the original of, book, I believe he was actually a preacher, and then they had to like make him not quite a preacher, like a guy pretending to be a preacher. Mm-hmm. They had to change that for the movie. It works. He was dressed yeah. as a preacher. Yeah, and he murders people. They get as a away preacher. with it. Yeah. Uh, and I think Charles Lawton was able to get away with it because this is not a lascivious movie. It doesn't relish in the violence. It makes everything very stylized. Uh, so I think it was a little bit more, perhaps more palatable. Maybe that's why it wasn't a hit, though. Mm. People weren't ready for this image of serial, like priestly serial killer. Uh, and it was just either too distasteful or just not something people could jibe with. Some of the reviews that I uh, read from the era mm. were really like a lot of people were just saying, yeah, Charles Lawton's got an interesting style. He clearly swung for the fences, but it sounded like they only wanted to engage with this film as a pot boiler. Yeah. And as a result, as a pot boiler, it's a little straightforward. The structure is odd. Uh, and I don't think they were looking at it as serious social commentary, which it has a huge element of, of course. And mm. I think as a result, if you're only looking at it from that one angle, it can look a little warped. But if you're only looking at it, if you're looking at it from like two angles simultaneously, you get the depth. Yeah. That's what depth of focus is. Yeah. Um, if you are uh, a young queer person in the mid fifties mm. and you've probably taken abuse from hypocritical Christians who are treating you badly, mm-hmm. uh, or you're at least getting anti-queer messages and you're in the closet uh, then seeing a vilified preacher must be very cathartic. Uh, and indeed, once you get to an expressly queer movie like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, they are essentially just tearing religious iconography to the ground. And this is something we talked about with Scorpio Rising as well, how a, a lot of uh, Catholic imagery and religious imagery is being used to bolster rather than oppress queer people. Mm. Uh, you go through the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it is loaded with wedding imagery and Christian imagery, if you are if you know where to look. Um, first of all, it starts with Brad and Janet having this sort of beatific uh, song about getting married. Here's the ring to prove that I'm no joker in the song Damn It, Janet. You'll notice that they're just leaving a wedding. Uh, Mrs. Dur and Mrs. Ralph Hapshad go driving off. And they are so taken by the romantic moment that Brad proposes to Janet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a silly song. It's meant to be a little bit too perky. 
And yeah. Brian and Janet are too perky. And you'll notice during that scene, yeah. they're turning the wedding into a funeral while they're singing this song. And they're marching yeah. down the aisle where they're wheeling in a casket. And you'll notice that the uh, priest <laughs> in the in that scene is played by Tim Curry. Tim Curry and also uh, Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn are all, are, and uh, Little Nell are all in that scene. Yeah, they're all, but they're playing different characters, mm. which is sort of like, oh, again, or, they, or are they? Or are yeah, they? Are, they, are they hiding out in some way? Mm, dichotomy. Uh, Later on, that scene is mirrored by the wedding scene between Frank and Rocky. Yeah. Where, uh, and he sings about, I'm going to grease you up in seven days. I'm going to make you a man. He's going to fuck. And uh, <laughs> it's like rubbing grease on him. And then they walk up the aisle. And what, what happens at the end? Frank leaps into, into Rocky's arms in this really sexual sort of way. Yeah. Uh, so they're using a lot of this traditional religious iconography to show this is all bullshit. Yeah. This is all bullshit. Weddings are kind of bullshit. Christianity is kind of bullshit. And we were given these, this sort of imagery that it's okay to put these anti-religious images th- that is through the lesson of media from this film from the 1950s. They were yeah. doing it as far back as then, 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and of course there are mm. precedents even before this, but this oh, is a, um, this I mean, is a there's, gigantic one. There's been anti-religious imagery as long as there's been religious imagery. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, I just want to make it clear back. we're not we're not claiming this movie invented that. Oh, good. That, just want to make that clear. Goodness, no. This is a tradition thousands of years old. No, but uh, that was but by by the time Rocky came out, this movie was like less than in, twenty years old. In and terms it was of very like, popular, very co- big. contemporary media yeah. imagery that Rocky Horror was directly drawing on. Uh, that that's what it's taking from the Night of the Hunter to offer the tenuous connection. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, yeah, Night of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't seen it, obviously we've ruined it for you. Sorry, well, I, I don't think we ruined it. It's I think good, I think yeah. I think if you were interested, you would have either seen it by now or maybe noticed that we were mm. talking about it. And if you kept listening, you noticed that we were doing the plot. So hopefully, you don't mind too much. But in any case, hopefully, we've given you the framework to maybe look at the film and maybe appreciate some of its wonders, um, because this movie is wonderful and mm. it's super creepy and it's weirdly funny and it's really thoughtful and hopeful while being incredibly sad. Uh, it's, it, it really is one of the best. I think it's one of the best motion pictures ever made. Yeah. So and, and it's, and it's widely it. available. Yeah. There's a really great criterion edition of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, right now, I believe it's uh, no extra charge on Amazon prime. Mm-hmm. If you have an Amazon prime account, think, you can just watch it. It might also be on HBO. Although curiously enough, it's not on the criterion channel right now. I don't think, I don't think it, it's, on it's HBO rotated either. out for a I don't second. I think it's on HBO oh, okay. either, but in any case, it, it's pretty easy to find. Mm-hmm. Please check it out. Uh, there was some talk not that long ago, uh, that they were going to remake it. And there was this huge outrage. How could they ever remake Night of the Hunter? To which I said, again? They remade this in the 90s. <laughs> it's like, it was Richard yeah. Chamberlain playing Harry Powell? Like, it's been done. Like, nothing sacred. Uh, which I think is kind of the point of the movie. So who <laughs> really... <laughs> it's kind of really hypocritical to complain. Um, but I still think the original is incredibly special. Uh, it's yeah. a shame Charlton, uh, Charlton Nesson. Charles, Charles it's, Lawton. It's a shame Charles Lawton uh, never directed again. The movie not being a particularly successful film, not getting good mm-hmm. reviews, apparently hit him pretty hard, and he just never really felt motivated to try again, which is a mm-hmm. damn shame yeah, because he I, was good. Uh, it wasn't a troubled production, but Charles Lawton evidently just wasn't enjoying making it this is mm. this is hearsay this is like yeah. some things that other people have said about the experience i know that uh robert mitchum felt this was kind of a silly role mm. he he didn't like the a lot of sort of the broader things that the character had to do he thought he was a little bit too much of like a monster and mm. not menacing in a real sort of way he especially uh objected to the monologues 
Mm. Uh, there's scenes like, hey, Lord, I'm going to talk to you. Like, evidently, you can see Robert Mitchum cracking up on camera because he thought thought, thought those scenes were so funny. Yeah. Uh, like, they actually had to use those takes in it's the a, final cut of the it's movie. It's weird. Piper Laurie, when she made uh, the original Carrie, said mm. she thought it was supposed to be a camp comedy, too. And yeah. yet, if you watch the movie and she's just fucking terrifying because some people really are larger than life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's easy to believe in those characters because that's yeah, where think, their headspace is. Yeah, Charles Lawton made such a, a, an impactful movie and made it in such a powerful way and in such a stylized way that even if Robert Mitchum is kind of like snickering to himself, uh, Charles Lawton was able to roll with that and put it into yeah. like the fabric of the stylized universe. Fucking incredible movie. Anyway, um, there, that is it for episode zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with the penultimate episode of Rocky Horror Episode Zero. Mm-hmm. Only got two left. And um, we thought for the second to last episode, we might go somewhere interesting. We thought we might go to, I don't know, like the Valley of the Dolls or something. But instead, we decided to really push ourselves. <laughs> and go a little beyond, if it, as it were. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> Can't we get Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? And now the Rangoon version of this joke. Uh, no, we're going to go. <laughs> we're going to go beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, it is another Russ Meyer joint. Uh, it's always a pleasure to take a take a trip down to that guy's filmography because he's weird and wonderful. And, and this is one of his biggest, weirdest, <laughs> loudest movies. Yeah, and I'm going to see if I can convince uh, the inimitable, impeccable, and ingenious M. Lapis de Silva to join us once again for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, do you know well, her? Okay. <laughs> Fun fact: While we're recording this, she's making soap elsewhere in the apartment. Um, but uh, so we'll, we'll we'll get her back and uh, we'll talk about. Uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is a cult classic that, I mean, if we it's weren't... It's got everything. If we weren't talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show still, like if this was, if Rocky Horror Picture Show wasn't the midnight movie, it would probably be Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Mm-hmm. Like if, we, if there was room to do more than one midnight movie per theater, we would be having concurrent showings of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls <laughs> constantly. Because it's, if you love Rocky Horror and you've never seen it, like holy mm-hmm. crap, you're going to love it. It's like, what the fuck? Fuckery is just everywhere, <laughs> strewn about like silly string. It's fantastic. It should be called What the Fuckery, the yeah. movie. Yeah. How did they turn that book into a movie? Anyway, uh, that is it for episode zero, though. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, without whom this show and none of our other shows could exist. So thank you for everything. You mean the world to us. If you can't afford to be a patron, we totally get it. If you can, you get a lot of exclusive shows. We do commentary tracks, shows about Star Trek, Batman, the Academy Awards, uh, Disney, a lot. We try to mm. make sure there's a lot of bang for your buck over there. So that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. But if you can't afford that, please leave us a review. Star rating, couple of sentences, whatever yeah, you can make the time for. That really helps more than you could really possibly know. Like It really helps like, push us up the algorithm and makes yeah, people... Help people find the show. Um, we're also on Twitter. We are at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and, of course, if you like soap... Some is being made within earshot. Like, right now, actually, uh, we have a lot of fancy handmade soaps, uh, mostly designed and created by M. Lapis da Silva, who is behind me. <laughs> and um, uh, they're over on our Etsy store. Look for uh, Etsy and uh, search for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. You can also follow Salt Cat Soap, all one word, at uh, on Twitter and Instagram. We have a lot of really, really gorgeous designs currently available now, including 
really fancy Father's Day gift sets. It's not too soon. I want to mm-hmm. get get that off the to do list uh, right now. But we also debut a lot of new designs and things on the first Saturday of the month. Uh, we don't just have soaps; we also have stickers and lotions and bath salts and a lot of other cool, uh, uh, a lot of cool products. So please check it out. Thank you for everyone who already has. You're great. And uh, that's it. Is that it? Well, we do have to shiver in, in something. Oh, yeah, we have to shiver. And wait a minute, you have another podcast. Oh, that's right. I do have another podcast. I uh, just started. In fact, I recorded just the second episode today, and it should be going live by the time you hear this. Uh, over on the Screen's Margins, a brand new podcasting network founded by the venerable B. Peterson. Yay! Uh, they and I are talking about Ovid. Uh, the podcast is called All About Ovid, spelled with all O's. Isn't that fun? Adorbs. Uh, Ovid is the streaming service for people who think that uh, the Criterion Collection is way too mainstream, man. Yeah. Uh, it's all of those films that showed in museums in your town, or like we're only showing for one day at the one art house you have in town. If you ever wanted to see a five-hour film from a country you've only vaguely heard of. Well, I, I think uh, I think you've heard of the country of the Philippines. Uh, well, on, I, on the I latest, was being facetious, yeah, but yeah. On, on the latest episode however we uh b and i talk about lav diaz's film uh, from what is before which is five hours and 38 minutes in length um that sort of thing yeah is is what's available on ovid things that uh, you know from all over the world really really challenging interesting complex uh art films that are not made by committee and don't fit into tidy little boxes which really you'd think that people would be a bit more excited about considering mm. how much of what we consume yeah but, is uh, really tidy yeah so uh so b decided uh ovid is here we have access to it why don't we why don't we just watch what we want on ovid and talk about it on on a regular basis mm-hmm. so uh we've done that now for two whole episodes and uh, we continue we're going to continue doing it for as long as we're interested as long as there's interesting stuff on ovid which will be always well yes until it gets sucked up by roku no, that was Quibi. Well, you never know. Maybe Roku is just going to gradually just like turn I, into I the would... singularity that pulls in all the smaller streaming services and then becomes the biggest streaming service as a result. I would love some weird cinematic space where Quibi and Ovid are like right next to each other. <laughs> or Murder House Flip. Yeah, I'm going to watch, yeah, Murder House Flip followed by a Lav Diaz film. That's yeah. going to be great. Now that's cinema. <laughs> Uh, that's the name of our new podcast. That's no, it's not. Um, thank you, everybody, once again. Check out all about Ovid. It is on the Screens Margins podcast feed. Search for that wherever you find fine podcasts, uh, and of course, you can also find them on Twitter and such. Um, and um, that's it from us. I see you quiver with anticipation. And shiver. I see you shiver with anticipation. <laughs> what? What do you want from me? It's not like I host a podcast about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Thank you.